if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, and I will come to you. Before, the long, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live with you also. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keep them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Word of the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry. That's more. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you will be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank Uri is our, um, is our pastoral intern, and we are just so blessed and excited to hear from him this morning. Um, and I'm going to pray for him real quick before he starts. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for, for Udai and his life and his witness and his heart for you. And uh, I pray that um, you would speak through him this morning and, um, and just use him to, um, to speak to us. And Holy Spirit, um, make us aware of your presence and... Um, and of your great love for us and um, and just make us receptive to what Udai has to say this morning. Amen. All right. Thank you, Pastor Meg. Um, and yeah, uh, nice to meet you all. Um, I'm, I'm really freaking nervous today, actually. And I have to be honest. Um, I think, you know, I'm just looking at your y'all's faces and like, I think some of you have just gotten too used to Zoom thing because, I mean, you, you're like in your couches, like you're watching this from bed and like y'all look so comfortable. It's a little, it's mildly infuriating actually. So, um, you know, but whatever, it's, <laughs> my, my feelings are my feelings. And so, no, thank you all for, um, first of all, for welcoming me in. Uh, it's really good to be here and it is really um my fear and also my pleasure 
to uh, be able to speak of the word of God with you today. And um, yeah, I just want to start out and say that, you know, the gospel of John is, I don't know when y'all became Christians. Um, I became Christian when I was in undergrad uh, 10 years ago. And, um, you know, the gospel of John was probably one of the first um, things that I read when I became a Christian. Um, I know there are kind of different approaches to, you know, when you when you meet a seeker or when you meet someone who isn't a Christian yet, you know, who has never read the Bible, like, where do you read first? You know, some people think Gospel of John is great because the language is simple. Some people think it's ridiculous because it's so kind of complicated on uh, its ideas. I mean, for me, uh, the Gospel of John is in a lot of ways the mother of my faith. I think there is an aspect of this Gospel um, that... Uh, really speaks to a culture in which I think a lot of times we feel very alone, I think. Um, we feel very alone and that, you know, at the end of the day, there are people around us and, you know, we have interactions and we have relationships, but that, you know, there are just times when um, there is, sometimes there seems to be no change in this world. Uh, we, you know, we have been in this uh, COVID situation for a long time, but even, you know, barring that, um, you might be at the same workplace for years and years, you might be in school for years and years, um, and, you know, your responsibilities are always going to be your responsibilities, and so in the end, at the end of the day, you're alone, finally alone, always to be alone, but I think the Gospel of John has something that really resists that kind of thinking, and I think that's what really spoke to me. Now, this passage in particular, um, now, there are a number of things I'd like to maybe call your attention to in this passage today. First of all, let's look at the very first verse we saw today, um, because I think our troubles begin here already. Um, verse 15 says, um, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, wait one second here. What does it, why is there a condition here, right? Why is it that if you love me, you will keep my commandments? That's a really kind of weird thing to say, I think. Yeah. I mean, this is Jesus speaking, but still, uh, we have to sort of wonder what, why he says that. And later on, um, this isn't part of our reading today, but in chapter 15, Jesus will even say, um, you know, if you, uh, if you keep my commandments, then I will call you my friend. And that's probably not what y'all think about when you think about friendship. And so, you know, you don't, if, if you weren't invited to the party and, you know, the host tells you, well, why, you know, you ask the host, you know, why, why wasn't I invited? And, you know, he or she tells you, well, you know, you don't listen to my commands. Um, you would sort of suspect there's something, that that person has some bigger issues than uh, this party at hand. You're, you should probably be glad that you weren't invited. And so, I mean, like I said, this is Jesus we're talking about. This is God we're talking about. This Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so, you know, I have, but I guess I've, you know, sort of introduced it in this way to sort of draw your attention to this language of love and friendship that Jesus uses here. Um, because this whole idea of command and commandments is pretty central to, I think, the entirety of Jesus' discourse as he prepares to be crucified. And this should cause us to wonder, you know, why? 
why does he use this language? Now, first of all, before we even talk about this, um, I'm going to turn your attention again to something else. Now, notice in um, verse 22, it says, there, there are three disciples that respond to Jesus in chapter 14. And one of them is this figure named Judas. And this Judas is identified only as not Iscariot. So, I mean, he's basically a nobody, right? Uh, he's, you know, of, when you think about the 12 disciples of Jesus, this probably, you probably forget about this one, um, largely because he actually doesn't even appear in all of the, all of the Gospels. Well, arguably, uh, he, the, this name is not part of the list of the 12 disciples in all of the books. There's another, in uh, Matthew and Mark, there's another disciple named Thaddeus. And some people say you know, he's probably the same person. It very well might be. But the point being, there is a Judas here who is merely identified as not Iscariot. And this Judas asks him, you know, Lord, how is it that you'll reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Well, what is he concerned about here? Because this almost, you know, he seems to be missing the point a little bit, right? Before this, Jesus tells, um, Jesus tells his disciples that he was not going to leave them. That just like in the songs that we sang just now, that he is going to send them an advocate who is the spirit of truth, he says. The spirit of God himself is going to come to his disciples, and that was going to be God's presence with them. Hold that thought for a bit. And then, and then but then in the response to Judas is a little bit, this Judas is a little bit confused. It's like, wait, you're just revealing yourself to us. Why not to the whole world? It's almost like, I don't know, he's encapsulating sort of this more general feeling within perhaps um, amongst his fellow countrymen that are maybe expecting something a little bit different from the son of God, right? Or the, someone who claims to be the savior, of, who is understood to be the savior of the world at this point. Um, aren't you going to show yourself to the whole world so that the whole world will know God? So the whole world will come to worship the Lord on Mount Zion? Isn't that sort of the point here? But then again, now I want you to remember, there's another Judas, um, the elephant in the room. Well, this Judas isn't here in this chapter. This Judas leaves in the previous chapter, in chapter 13. And this is uh, the more famous Judas, Iscariot. Now this Judas, you know, we know him as the one who betrays Christ. And I think many of us are familiar with how his life ends. And this Judas, if you remember, goes to Jesus. And Jesus says something along the lines of, one of you will betray me. And the disciples are really curious, like, whoa, whoa, wait, none of us think, are thinking of betraying you. Who's going to betray you? And he says, the one, and Jesus does this little trick. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's a trick. It's probably not. He does this thing where he has bread. He dips it, and then he hands it to the one who is going to betray him. And so Judas receives this bread that has been dipped. I don't know. Is that Christ's blood? Is that, um, is that, is that a body of baptism? I, I'm not really sure there. But he receives this bread, and then he leaves. And as the biblical text tells us, it was night. And so we have two Judases in, this, in the Gospel of John. 
we had this one who was very well known, who was known as the betrayer of Christ. But we had this other one who is um, mentioned once in this entire gospel. But I think they, there is a bit of a similarity between these two characters. Each one of them seems to be to represent some aspect of uh, a general sentiment among the people who are their namesake, which are the Judean people, um, the Jewish people. And on the one hand, there, is, there seems to be um, two paths. There is one path which leads into the night, into darkness, into death, which leaves the presence of God while taking his bread. Remember that Jesus also tells the Jews in the, in the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate uh, the bread in the wilderness and died. And so there seems to be a way in which you can simply take the bread and then leave. And yet there is another way in which, which also doesn't seem to quite capture the point, which seems to say that, oh, we recognize who, we recognize God amongst us and we will follow this God. And yet somehow we do not expect, we expect something a little bit different from this God. We don't expect this God to necessarily um, reveal himself to this sort of clique of people. Uh, we expect this God to come in perhaps a more glorious fashion, right? Maybe with the whole host of heaven, with all the armies of the Father in heaven, perhaps. Well, that's not really what seems to be going on here. What that does, what that does remind us, though, is that even though we kind of view Judas Iscariot as this sort of tragic character and this other Judas we don't even remember, right? Um, I think that perhaps that these characters are a reminder to us that God's relationship is first and foremost um, revealed to human, God, I'm sorry, let me go back. God reveals himself to human beings through a very specific relationship. And it is a, is a relationship with the nation of Israel. And this covenant relationship is, I think, related to our little problem here about why Jesus fixates so much on this idea of commandment. Now, um, so perhaps, uh, I'm sorry, give me one second. Now, I'd, li I'd like for us to consider now what, really, what we think about when we think of commandment. Um, because I would like for you, I'd like to remind you today that God does not necessarily command as humans command one another. And the significance of, I think, Jesus's discourse here is uh, somewhere within this distinction. Now, I mean, obviously God commands, let there be light and there is light. Uh, there's an enormous creative power to God's command, but that's not it, right? I mean, it's not just as if, but that's not all there is to God's command. Uh, it's not as if, you know, uh, God's, God just commands us to do something and then we do it necessarily. If that were the case, then um, we would probably not be human. We would probably be robots and we probably would not have something called sin and we would probably not have the world we have today. But what, it, what is important to remember, I think, is that God's commandments 
are a very important aspect of how human beings come to know God in a world that fundamentally can't see God. Well, what, what do we mean by that? Well, it is through these commandments in the Bible that humans come to know how to enter into God's presence. The commandments aren't just some directive, right? It's not an order from a superior being. Um, in fact, the Bible tells that they are a joy and a comfort, more desirable than gold, sweeter than honey. And the psalmist writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's from Psalm 19. Well, why are the commandments sweet? They're sweet because they are premised on the promise of God's presence with us. Now, remember that in, the, in this really big story of the Bible, God frees the Israelites um, from bondage in Egypt. And you know, as they go to the promised land, which God told them about, he uh, also feeds the Israelites. But they aren't, just, they aren't just freed and fed for just because that's the right thing to do per se. These, this freedom and feeding have a purpose. He feeds them in the wilderness, but um, you know, he as um, I'm sorry. He feeds them in the wilderness, and and as Jesus mentions, um, this is not enough for you know they. It gives them enough to survive, but that doesn't. But if you remember, the entire first generation of people who come out of Egypt, they die in the wilderness. That's why Jesus tells, um, the, uh, reminds the Jewish people that your ancestors ate the man in the desert and they're dead. Uh, because one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the, word, the mouth of the Lord. And so, and the freedom that they are given is not, a, remember, if you remember the Exodus story at all, it's, it's not freedom just because freedom is in itself a good thing. It's, it's a freedom so that we may go to worship the Lord. And so, and what is, and how is it that these people are supposed to worship the Lord? How are they to know a God who is, in some sense, not this world, not of this world? We can't see God a lot of times unless God comes to us first. And then even if God does come to us, we're, we're given, I mean, we can sort of guess, but the Bible also tells us that God is a pretty dangerous figure to be around. And so God gives Israelites a way to approach him. And that is, and, and that's set, and that is part of the covenant, the set of commandments that he gives to the Israelites that begins with the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And so it is in these commandments, and it is in cleaving to these words that people are able to commune at all with the God of heaven and earth. And what then is the end game of this? Well, God tells us that I will place my dwelling in your midst and I shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. From Leviticus 26. And so 
Now, does this language sound a little bit familiar now at this point? Because Jesus also tells us in the passage that we read today that um, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth. You know him because he abides in you and he will be in you. And he also promises, those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. God's commandment is not merely a God's directive. God's commandment is always a promise for him to be with us on this earth, to walk amongst us and to be in us and us in him. And so, um, as you know, uh, the most important symbol of God's presence in the history of Israel was the Temple of Jerusalem. And if you have read the Bible, then you'll know that this temple is destroyed. And the question becomes, you know, where is God? Um, where is God then? And as you know, there was another temple that was rebuilt after. The first one was destroyed. This one's destroyed uh, by the Romans after, the, after Jesus' death in AD 70. And the same question is again posed, where is God? If God is not with us here, if that here is no longer here, then where is God? And sometimes I think we look at our own world and we wonder too, in this sort of, you know, in a sea of information, in a sea of, um, in such a huge diversity of people, of things, of ideas in this world, where is God? Where does God dwell? Is there somewhere where God is anchored? And I would like to just remind you today that, that even though um, God's presence is, um, well, I would like to remind you today that God's presence is still promised to us and that it comes through, as Paul tells us, don't you know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Um, I'm sorry, the, he says your body uh, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Gospel of John for me was one of the most important texts that told me what, what it was, uh, what was special about the church, why the church existed. And Jesus tells us a little bit, gives us a glimpse of what um, that is supposed to look like here, I think. He says earlier on in the gospel that, uh, I, that you know, destroy this temple, right? And I will raise it up in three days. But he was talking about the temple of his body. And so when that body has risen, but, you know, how do we know that God's presence is there? Well, God says, you know, I will send you the advocate. I will send you the spirit. The Spirit of God, this idea of the Spirit of God being sent to human beings and going where God's people goes, this idea isn't completely new in the Bible. Um, even, since, even back in the Old Testament, you saw, I mean, God's presence, you know, his glory, his full, you know, this, almost this fullness of his glory went ahead of the Israelites when, during their exodus. And then also, uh, if you look at the book of Kings, um, you know, Solomon does build a temple in Jerusalem, but uh, what happens after that? The kingdom splits in two. The northern kingdom rebels against um, the kings in Jerusalem. And yet, you have this entire arc, this entire story of 
the spirit of God coming to a prophet named Elijah, who is a prophet in the north, in this rebellious kingdom, prophesying to the kings and the people there. And then you see the spirit passed on to Elisha. And even after the temple is destroyed, you see Ezekiel having this vision, right? He has this vision of the glory of God sort of uh, hovering above and actually leaving the temple, Jerusalem, with on wheels. It has, these, it has this really weird vision where God has wheels. But maybe God goes into exile with his people. And so, although there are a lot of probably, perhaps questions in your mind right now of the concrete, of how this concretely applies to my life, I just want you to leave you today with this reminder that God is with us because, well, more than one thing actually, because God's covenant involves his commandments, if his com- where his commandments is, God assures us, Jesus assures us that his spirit will be with us as well. And then that means that where there is, where there is Christ's love, right? The love with which he loved us, which is the love which involves laying down one's life for one's friends. It, where that love can be found, God's spirit will be found as well. And, and this will, and I hope that this will be something that we, that we can keep in our minds as we go forward in a world of uncertainty and of when where God's presence seems invisible at times. Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessing and for the opportunity to um, to be here at Oak Church with your people and uh, to worship you. Uh, I thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, um, both through me and despite me. Um, I th- I thank you that. Uh, you have, I thank you that you have given us um, your spirit, that this spirit both changes us and it also is the assurance of our salvation and it also binds us together in one body. And you have given us various gifts through the spirit so that it is possible to have a, a life in which each one of us is a part and yet each one of us is important and holy in your sight in, in his or her own right. Lord, we pray for your continued presence among us. We pray that your love abide in us so that we may abide in you. And we pray that through your love, the world may know who you are and that uh, you, may, you may restore all things, the goodness of creation, Um, through the work that you have done in Jesus Christ. And may we be instruments in your hands for this purpose. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.